Kia ora, and welcome to the New Zealand History Podcast channel, where you will find talks on Aotearoa New Zealand history, culture, and society. These talks are organised by Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, with the support of the Alexander Turnbull Library. They are recorded live, either via Zoom or in person at Tipuna Matauranga or Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand. Tēnā koutou katoa. Whakataka te hau ki te uru, whakataka te hau ki te tonga. Kia mā kina kina ki uta, kia mā taratara ki tai. E hiake ana te atākura, e tio, he huka, he hauhu, tihe e mauri ora, tēnā koutou katoa. E koreo e naro, te kākano i ruia mai i rangi ātia. Nau mai koutou ki te mātahi o te tau, te tuatahi o te marama o hune. Ki nga mate kua henga i te toki o Aitua, haere koutou ki te moana nui, te reringa wana waka i hoi hoi ai e rata mā kanaro i te tirohanga kanohi. Hoi anō, e mau tonu ana i nga tō pitopito o te nākau. Āpati hono tātou hono rātou, te hunga mate ki a rātou, āpati hono tātou hono tātou, te hunga ora ki a tātou katoa. Ka mehi hoki ki nga mana whenua o te rohe nei, nga tangato o te raukura, Taranaki whānui ki te upoko tika, me ngāti tō rangatira tēnā koutou. Ka mehi hoki ki te kaupapa o te rānei, tēnei kaupapa kōrero e kia nei ko ngā kauhau hitori. Nā te manatū taonga, nā te whare pukapoko nei i whakahairi e nei kohinga kōrero. Kate, Steve, Neil, Ma, tēnā koutou. Hei te rānei, ka tuku mihi maioha ki tā tātou kai kōrero, tākuta Liana MacDonald, nō nā te kuia, Rangitāne o wairau nā te koata, e te manukura, e te kairangahau, e te kaituhituhi, a nau mai ki te kaupapa nei. Mauria mai o pukenga kōrero hoki ki a whakaohoho i a tātou. Nā reira, Liana, tēnā nō koe. O tērā tēnā koutou katoa, nau mai ki te whare nei, nau mai ki te kaupapa nei. Kia ora, everyone. I'm Paul Diamond, Curator Māori at the Alexander Turnbull Library. Um, and it's just important to me to offer a karakia and brief mihi, um, acknowledging the mana whenua of the land that this library is, has been built on in these collections, and acknowledging those who've passed on and bringing us back to the realm of the living, and acknowledging that this series is a partnership between the um, Te Puna Mātauranga Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand, and Manatū Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage. And I just wanted to mention before I hand over to um, the Ministry, um, that I've known of Liana and had some contact with Liana for a wee while, but this is actually the first time we've met because of these um, plague times we're living in. And um, we actually connected through the last New Zealand Historical Association conference, which was held virtually. And uh, also, and I, Liana gave a fantastic kōrero about the exhibition upstairs, Here Tohu, a fantastic critique, uh, and of Te Papa. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And then I also, when my, I'm an oral historian and when the latest issue of the National Oral History Association New Zealand Journal landed in my letterbox, there was an article from Liana about Wairo, which we're hearing about today. So thank you, Ehoa. It's, it's great that you've come, been able to be with us here today. Now it's my great pleasure to hand over to my former colleague, Steve Waters from Manatū Taonga. Kia ora, Steve. Kia ora tātou katoa. Ke Manatū Taonga o e Mahiana, he pō arataki o te paiwananga, te tukunga ihutanga, ko Steve Waters tōko ingoa. 
No reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Um, good afternoon, my name is um, Steve Waters. I'm currently the Acting Chief Historian at Manatū Taonga, Ministry for Culture and Heritage. And I just want to kind of um, say how great it is to see so many people actually in person after having had to run the last few seminars online. But I do understand there's a good turnout online as well, so that's really exciting. Um, I'm really excited about today's talk. Um, in a previous life, I was a history teacher. And I remember vividly in the 1980s when I started teaching, having a really interesting conversation with a, a year 13 class about the use of the word massacre in reference to what happened at Waido. And we talked then about the importance or the power of language when it came to giving us a sort of a perspective for a sense of historical events. So um, I'm really thrilled to hear um, Liana share her research with us today, as I'm sure you all will be. Because um, obviously when reflecting on our history, it's often worth asking ourselves, why is it that some conflicts are publicly remembered, others are forgotten or overlooked altogether, and I guess also who gets to decide which are the ones that we're going to look at. So I think those sorts of issues also um, are um, clearly linked to today's topic. Perspective is something we talk a lot about in the work that we do at Manatū Taonga, and in particular in a section that we have on our NZ History website for schools called Tiako Manga, and we talk in there a lot about how we can help teachers and students start to bring more historical perspective into their teaching rather than just the kind of sticking to content. So again, I think the sort of research that Liana is going to be talking today, uh, talking about today is, is, is going to be really, really worthwhile. Um, just because I don't want to take up too much of um, Liana's time, it was interesting. My colleague Neil Shield shared a link with me this morning to an essay by Philip Temple, Wakefield scholar, um, entitled White Man's History, The Execution of Arthur Wakefield. Um, this also, and this in, in reading it, highlighted to me again the ongoing significance of the events at Wairo, but also the importance, once again, of the considerations of perspective. Temple describes there being, and I quote, no need for euphemisms. It could only have been a massacre. So I thought that might be an interesting way of leading into um, today's talk. So I think Liana's planning to speak for maybe up to 40 minutes and then we'll have time for questions. We'll have some people roaming the room with microphones. And I understand Joan from the National Library is also monitoring questions from people online that we can also put um, to the, uh, can also put to Liana. So I think on that note, I'd best hand over to Liana. Kia ora. Kia ora koutou katoa. Um, nei te mihi mai oha, kia tātou katoa, e hui tahi nei i tēnei rā, uh, e aro hoki nei uh, ki ngā kaupapa o te rā. Uh, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Um, ngā mihi, um, Paul, and um, your colleagues for um, welcoming here today. Uh, ko waiau, uh, ko moki tapu toku maunga, ko uh, hoi re te awa, ko kura haupo te waka, ko te hora te marae, ko Ngāti Kuia, rāua ko uh, Rangitāne o Wairau o Ku Iwi, uh, ko Liana MacDonald ahau. Um, thank you very, very much for giving up your time to come and listen to my talk today. Um, certainly wasn't great weather to get you out here, but it's great to have such a good turnout um, and greetings to those of you who are joining us online. 
Um, so the talk is titled Shifting Perspectives About Colonial Conflict in the Wairua Fray and the Battle of Bullcott's Farm. This talk is based on research that I conducted on behalf of a large-scale ethnographic study called He Taunga Te Wariwari, Remembering and Forgetting New Zealand's Colonial Past. And the project is led by Professor Joanna Kidman and Dr Vincent O'Malley and traces shifting perspe historical perspectives of the New Zealand wars. It focuses on how different groups have commemorated these conflicts over time and how memory and silence about this difficult past permeates ev people's everyday lives in the present. And I was lucky enough to join this project as a postdoctoral research fellow from 2019 to 2020, just after finishing my PhD. A significant aspect of my role um, was conducting fieldwork associated with colonial conflict in the Waikato, in Wellington and in the Waido regions. And what was also exciting about this research, as has been alluded to, is that the early stages coincided with the government announcement in September 2019 that New Zealand history will be taught to all schools in 2022, which, as you know, is now 2023. Of course, this has implications for how we reckon with our difficult histories. Following the postdoc, I was employed as a lecturer at Victoria University in the Faculty of Education, and I've been thinking about how schools and classrooms can approach the teaching of difficult histories in ways that attend meaningfully to key curriculum understandings in the Aotearoa New Zealand Histories curriculum about power, colonisation and settlement. And I'll return to these points briefly at the end of the presentation. So there are two parts to my talk today. The first part draws from interview data to show how the Wairoa fray is remembered differently by settler and indigenous groups um, from the Marlborough region. And the second part will relay research observations for thinking about how sites associated with the Battle of Bullcott Farm reflect settler perspectives about the past. So in um, February 2020, I travelled down to Blenheim to visit the Wairua Frey site, the Marlborough Museum, and to talk to um, mana whenua um, and descendants of settlers to hear their thoughts about the conflict. Although I grew up in Blenheim, I'm tribally and, and tribally affiliated to the area through my father's parents, I actually learnt very little about the battle and the events surrounding it growing up. I, I knew the basics, um, that it was the most significant military exchange between iwi Māori and colonial and settler militia in the South Island, and that it occurred in Tuamarino on the 17th of June, 1843. Up to nine Māori and 22 Pākehā were killed that day, and I could remember that the name kept changing as I grew up in the region and moved back and forth from Wellington to Blenheim during, during university breaks, from the Wairo massacre to an incident, and then to an affray, which is perhaps testament to the slow acceptance of the Blenheims, of Blenheim's predominantly Pākehā community, that the British and settler militia were in the wrong that day. I spoke to se several people during my time in Blenheim, um, and I'll relay um, their thoughts in a moment. Um, James, who is a Pākehā museum educator. Uh, Hone, who's on the iwi board for Ngāti Tōa, Ngāti Rāroa Ki Wairo. Uh, Peter Iwi is on the Iwi board for Rangitani or Wairo. Uh, Petey, who's the Marae manager for Ngati Queer, and Petey's parents, Auntie Margie and Uncle Timmy. And by the way, I'm using pseudonyms here. And although Hone, Peter, and Petey uh, sit on distinct Iwi boards and Marae committee, we are all related and can fucka papa to each other in te, te tai, can fucka papa to other Iwi in te tai 
ihu, te, te tauihu, aroha mai. Te tauihu is the name for the top of the South Island. And just to give a little bit more context about the rohe, Te Tauihu is comprised of eight tribes. So Ngāti Kuia were the first to arrive on the Kurahopo Waka at the northern end of the South Island, with Rangitane and Ngāti Yapa also uh, residing in the region prior to the 1800s. An alliance of uh, Tainui, so Ngāti Tua, Ngāti Rārua, Ngāti Koata and Taranaki tribes, so Ngāti Tama and Tiatiawa, arrived in the 1820s and um, conquered and dominated the region. So I set up the interviews with a clear intention to talk about the Wairoa fray, but as you'll see, each participant approached the conflict from different directions and spoke about different but related issues. The findings are relayed through a narrative approach to show how individuals from settler and Indigenous participants remember the fray and think about its significance today, and also to make my relationship with participants and you, the audience, somewhat transparent to emphasise the multi-layered environment in which stories and oral histories are told. So the interview with James takes place in the education room in the Marlborough Museum. I look around and I think about the thousands of young Blenheim people who have been educated about local history inside this space in his 20 plus year career. We sit in chairs facing each other in the middle and I feel exposed by the dim lighting and wide spaces around us and behind me. However, James's articulate voice and gregarious demeanour soon fill the room and it's difficult to feel lonely in this space for very long. James is Pākehā and he was raised in Marlborough and says that he's a top of the South person. He learned about the wider conflict primarily through reading books from local historians and discussing the text that has shaped his thinking um, from the 1960s to present day. Some of James's information was gleaned from fireside chats with the book authors, and he enjoyed and valued those occasions immensely. However, much of the interview focuses on his approach to teaching adults and children about the events directly connected to the 1843 battle in Wairo. James begins by explaining that one point of contention is how difficult members of the Marlborough community name the conflict. He notes that the label massacre is still in use, particularly by, and I quote, the generation who are now in the 80s, 90s, hundreds, who are taught the true definition of a massacre, indicating a belief that Māori will no longer be cast as villains when the older generation fades away. James is sometimes invited to talk to other groups or older groups of people about the fray to relay a more balanced perspective, whereby he says that the majority of fault was with the people in Nelson and the only fault that can really be cast to anyone on the Ngāti Tua side was that Te Rangihaiata killed people who surrendered. James May's educative work, however, is reserved for young people. Part of his approach is to dis discuss how the events that have unfolded in the Wairo can be attributed to different cultural values or understandings that were held by Māori and Europeans at the time. He also explains that his base basic approach is to keep the kids interested and as, and as much hands-on as possible. He gives the students replica artefacts of swords, pistols, handcuffs and muskets to reenact the battle when they're taken to the site. He's clearly passionate about teaching the wider afraid and discusses many other significant historical events in the region. I admire the energy and resources that James has poured into understanding the events that unfolded at the battle at Wairo. Hone and I meet at Ngāti Toa Ki Wairo headquarters on the edge of town. 
a disorderly site of temporary buildings that serve a number of small businesses. It takes me a while to find the office, but when I do, I'm given a cheery welcome and Honey waves me into a space that accommodates a large table with room to move around comfortably either side. He's dressed in a business suit and coincidentally an array of papers related to the wairua fray are spread on the table. On the walls are eight identical maps of Te Tauihu with overlapping boundary outlines for each iwi. The lighting in the room is bright because the walls are white. It feels clean and a little sterile. Hone tells me that he grew up with his grandmother, who was of Ngāti Kuia, Rangitāne, Ngāti Apa, Ngāti descent, and grandfather, who was from Ngāti Rāroa of Ngāti Toa. Although his grandfather didn't speak of the battle directly, he talked to Hone about his connections to the whenua, to maunga, etc., etc., and Hone knew that his grandfather was raised alongside Māori who were at the battle. Hone's great-great-grand-uncle and great-great-great-grandfather were at the wairau. His great-great-grand-uncle wrote down the account of the battle many years later, and it was verified by witnesses and written down by someone who was plausible. Hone asserts that, the Waido incident was nothing to do with losing any land. It was to do with Ngāti Tōa defending ownership of the land and a foreign country a company that was coming here to take it. He believes that Ngāti Tōa intermarried with tribes who were already established in Te Tauihu to bring the peace. Some people in Iwi now think it was done in subjugation, but it was never the intent. It was to marry, to keep the peace so there'd be no more conflict. There wouldn't be any intertribal conflict anymore because we had a bigger picture on our hands and it was white. <laughs> Much bigger problem. And then the devastation of the influenza and the diseases coming from 1830. Because 1830s, when most of the Europeans came, was when the pop population declined and Māori could see it. They would have to have been able to see it then. And then they realised, well, we need to fight together. Hone's old own history teacher at school told the class that the wairau was lost because Te Rauparaha had killed a whole lot of Europeans and the Maoris had lost all their land. Hone said, well, I thought that was funny because I knew my grandparents lived on Māori land down the par. <laughs> Can't have lost it all. Hone said that he'd heard a lot of people either talking negatively about what Te Rauparaha did or not talking about it at all. Then he said, but then when you think about it, None of us would be here without him because he owned the place. After he'd done what he did in the battle, who did the New Zealand company negotiate with? Who did the Crown have to negotiate with? We would have had nothing if it wasn't for him. And those of you who've been to Blenheim probably recognise Blenkinsop's um, cannon sitting outside the Marlborough District Council. Um, it was given to Te Rauparaha in exchange for access to wood and water from his ship but he later claimed that the chief had signed away the Wairau plane in exchange for the cannon. <clears throat> um, and Honey spoke briefly about the cannon during the interview, and he's actually personally connected to the cannon through uh, whakapapa that goes back to Eri Hapiti in Blenkinsop. So it's kind of interesting how he was connected to both sides of the affray. Now, cousin uh, Peter is highly regarded among Māori and Pākehā communities in Blenheim. He offers to take me and a research colleague to sites around Blenheim and the Wairau of significance, a tour he's conducted many times before and with groups of Blenheim youth. We spend the first hour in the township visiting Poe and a recently erected sculpture to commemorate the history of local iwi. The second hour takes us out of Blenheim to some past sites where our tūpuna lived. 
Unlike Hone, Peter was taught by a really good history teacher who was a migrant to Aotearoa. When the teacher learned of Peter's iwi connections, oh, he walked out of his back, out the back of his room and out to the resource room and brought out this big folder that was full of old copy documents from the appendices to the House of Representatives and stuff like that. I saw all the names on the census, Hemi, Fero, Meihana, Kiriopa, Tahuriki, all the old folks. Peter said he also got a lot of the Wairo stories from an uncle and from my own grandmother, who had a great memory and lots of knowledge about families um, within the Rohe. So Wairo Bar Road is just north of Blenheim, so the Spring, uh, the spring Creek turnoff. And the road leads to Tepokohiwi, the Wairo Bar, which is a significant archaeological site that marks the arrival of the first Polynesian people ever to set foot in Aotearoa. But while the area is rich in pre-colonial history um, and has seen several waves of Māori settlement, the area is also significant for the part it plays in colonial history between settler indigenous groups and inter-iwi relations in the region. And so we travel for about 10 minutes down the road until Peter suddenly instructs us to pull over and jump out. Then he gives us the talk that he gave to Blenheim youth who come to this place. I say to the boys, did you know that in New Zealand we had reservations? And of course, they've all seen the cowboy movies and they know that North American tangata whenua were put on reservations, but they didn't know that we also had reservations. So pretty much what you can see here Going that way and that way was what was called the Wairo Reserve. That was set up in 1856, and from the very get-go, it was a problem. Dangitani was of the belief that they were going to get a reserve that was two miles inland from the mouth of the Wairo River, 10 miles up the coast up into Port Underwood, two miles inland, and then 10 miles back this way. And that reserve was then supposed to link up with the other reserves in Havelock and Canvas Town. But what happened was that the government reneged and said, we're not going to give you that much. We're going to give you 770-odd acres, which was basically that and that, shared amongst three tribes. They divided the reserve up into three blocks, so that part down there became Ngāti Tua, that was Rārua, and then down there was Rangitāne. So the situation you had was two tribes that had recently arrived in the area at war with the other tribes, and now they were pushed onto the same reserve. After that, you have lots of flow and effects, right? You have big families getting born of 13 kids. The next generation has 13, 14 kids. It just exploded. And of course, these blocks at, these blocks at that time were swamp. So you didn't have enough land to support families. What happens then is you have competition and squabbles, and the squabbling still goes on. So you have swamp and the tribes fighting against themselves over the boundaries because one tribe believed they should have more than the other. Once the boundaries were fixed, then you had families fighting within tribes over who should get what. Then as the families grew and grew and grew, people got pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. Then the next lot of government reserves was set up in 1906 and the people who would have been here if the original reserve was set up got forced out into the sounds. Then, after the Depression and the Second World War, those people started to move back to the Wairo. But what happens is people get these ideas that, well, hang on a minute, you guys aren't from here, you're from out there. Well, actually, nah, we were from here. It's just that because of what happened, we got forced out. 
but now we're back. The drive from Blenheim to Canvas Town is only about 25 minutes, but in that short space of time, my shoulders drop and my neck relaxes, and any ties to urban landscapes have long since disappeared, and the car brings me and my research colleague through grass fields and rolling mountains and hills. I always feel like I've stepped back in time when visiting Te Horamarai. This is my Tūranga Waiwai, the place I reconnect with with relatives, the fields I roamed freely with cousins, the urupa that holds the remains of Fanonga and my father. The whare nui, however, has completely transformed since I was a child. What was a modest steel structure of the size of a small hall has grown several extensions, including a large kai to the right. I meet Uncle Timmy under an alcove that looks out on the urupa. It's been a while since we last saw each other, but he's just the same. Still a little older, but quick with a quip. My favourite spot on the marae is here. The day is turned out a beauty, hot and still. My eyes squint out to the brightness. Flecks of pollen and darting insects screen the view looking out into the hills. My cousin's makeshift home perches in the foreground, flanked by cars and caravans. I notice the fence cordoning the urupa has grown considerably. Scrub and trees line the marae on the right, blocking the view to the main road to Nelson below. Auntie Margie greets us and takes us proudly through the building extensions, then into the whare nui to talk to Uncle Timmy and Cousin Petey about the Wairoa fray. Except our corridor covers a lot of historical terrain and very little of the battle itself. Petey drives the first part of the discussion and much of this centres on the Te Tauihu Treaty Settlements process between the late 90s and early 2000s. He describes feeling frustrated, angry and disappointed at court hearings. Each iwi had hired lawyers to write up reports that said real ugly things. Petey said that the relationships between iwi and hapū changed after the settlement process. Although everyone knew we were Ngāti queer, we weren't arguing with our koata neighbours and our rāroa neighbours and our tiatiawa neighbours. We were still all cousins and uncles. I remember that growing up. And then the Waitangi Tribunal claims came along and Iwi started having to draw lines in the sand and present claims. I know the rhetoric was these are grievance claims against the government, but at the end of the day it was Iwi trying to state their claim and sometimes that meant to the detriment of other Iwi. The process was hurtful and changed PD's view of some relations. However, he later came to realise that it was the crown and the policies and the laws and the government that kept driving it. He spoke about Ngāti Queer experiencing four or five life-changing events that you usually only get one in them in a century or every couple or every couple hundred years. Ngāi iwi ho, the Taranaki Tainui iwi came through in the early 1830s or whenever it was. Not even 10 years later, we're having the Treaty of Waitangi. Then within the next 20-odd years, you've got these massive land sales happening. And then the Native Land Court in the 1800s. Each one of them had massive effects on our people, and not one of them through our own doing, all driven with the intent to alienate us, not just from our lands, but from who we were as Māori as well. So it is a process, and it carried on happening in the 1900s as well. The Wairua fray only featured twice briefly during the interview. Auntie Margie said, oh, we never learned about the Māori wars at school. They taught us all about Waterloo and all of those big wars over in those other places but they never taught us about the Māori wars. She said they didn't really hear about the Wairoa fray. Oh, 
until actually after the settlement's claims. It was from hearing from our rangitane and ngāti apa and concerned cousins about how they experienced the wars. All I know is they fired the first shot and started the war that ended up really, really nasty. It was Wakefield and Co. They fired the first shot, I believe. That's all I knew about it. Uncle Timmy said at school, oh, no one spoke to me much about the massacre. We all kept quiet here because we weren't allowed to speak Māori. I spoke one word and the headmaster heard me and gave me six of the best and said, don't you ever let me hear you saying Māori again. So the interviews with James, Pone, Peter, Petey, Auntie Margie and Uncle uh, Timmy revealed that the Wairua Frey is not thought about the same way from, by individuals from different iwi and settler groups in Te Tauihu. James, um, the museum educator, spoke mostly about the conflict itself. And like many Pākehā living in Blenheim, colonial injustice is likely associated with one event that happened in the past and racism is attributed to the actions of settler phobias. Pone spoke about several issues, but primarily Ngāti Tōr's desire to unite against the colonisers. Peter discussed the Wairau reserves and the divisive effect these had on several iwi, and Petey and his parents spoke about the Te Tauihu settlements process and further iwi division. The issues that emerged in relation to discussions about the Wairau Frey were diverse, contested and partial, indicating the importance of drawing from a wide range of iwi and hapu perspectives. Oral histories are connected to lived realities and shifting timeframes, personhood, and for Māori, the struggle for self-determination. Indeed, my own personal experiences no doubt informed the way that I have framed the talk that I deliver today. And to further illustrate, I sent this interview analysis to one of my cousins to hear his thoughts or their thoughts. Um, one thought it important to acknowledge the building of a new po on the edge of the township next to the Opawa River a beacon for iwi living in the wairo to look to our tūpuna and tamariki for a more hopeful future. It feels important to acknowledge that my interpretation of the interviews as shifting perspectives of the affray could equally re be reformulated as local asser uh, assertions of tribal autonomy. Um, but attending to diverse, partial and incomplete oral accounts of local history from a range of Indigenous and settler perspectives can play an important role in decolonising local histories to reconstitute new narratives of colonial violence that speak for us all. So I'm now going to turn to the second part of this um, talk, which is a chapter that I co-wrote, um, that I chapter that, from a book that I co-authored with um, Joanna Kidman, Vincent O'Malley, Tom Noor, and Kezia Wallace, called Fragments um, from a Contested Past. And um, this is the book. This is the book here. I heard yesterday that there are copies of the Puka Puka at um, Vic Books in Pipitia. And you can order a copy online. So it's just a wee plug for that. So after returning from the Wairo, I was accompanied by a Yellow Knives Denny scholar from the Canadian Arctic Circle called Laurieann Lines. And we went to visit sites associated with the two main battles or clashes of the 1846 Wellington Wars, the Battle of Bullcott's Farm in the Hutt Valley, uh, Te Awakairangi, and Battle Hill, Horokiwi, um, which is inland from Porirua. So a bit of historical context, um, fighting in this region um, followed duplicitous attempts by the New Zealand Company in 1839 to purchase land, stretching all the way back from Moko in northern Taranaki to the Huranui River in North Canterbury. Hutt Valley, Mana Whenua, Ngāti Tama and Ngāti Rangatahi were not part of any land sale agreement. However, the pressure to house thousands of settlers who had purchased lands from the company in good faith 
gave Governor George Grey a reason to bring military reinforcements to Wellington in February 1846 to assert, and I quote O'Malley, the Crown's authority over the Cook Strait region and destroy Māori independence. After Māori in the district were effectively driven from their lands, um, Te Mamaku, who was also known as Te Karamu, and 200 other Ngāti Kaua Te Rangi warriors retaliated. On the 16th of May 1846, Atawa attacked a garrison of troops from the 58th Regiment stationed at Battle Farm, Abulcott's Farm. <laughs> the British were overpowered and Māori withdrew unhampered. And now this is now known as the Battle of Bulcott's Farm. And though, although um, Te Rangi Hayata of Ngāti Tōranga Tera was not present at the battle, he and his tribe had um, been prominent in resisting Crown efforts to drive Māori from their lands and was accused of plotting the attack on the British troops. So on the 23rd of July 1846, senior Ngāti Tōranga Tera leader Te was seized under Grace order at Taupo Pa in present-day Plymouthton. Uh, British forces and their, their allies then moved against Te Rangi Hayata, forcing him um, from Matai Taua, his power Tahanui, into steeper country further up the Koro, uh, Horokiwi, Horokiri. Gray's determination to eliminate Te Rangi Hayata as a threat to Crown authority in the region ultimately led British forces up Battle Hill um, in pursuit of the Rangatira and his supporters. The British eventually retreated due to the difficult terrain and weather conditions, leaving their Māori allies to engage in a half-hearted pursuit. So Laurie-Anne and I spent a day visiting these sites, um, beginning our field work in Lower Hutt, uh, then heading over to Haywards Hill to Pawa Tahanui. And along the way, we recorded our thoughts and conversations about how these events are remembered or not today. And what follows are loosely edited notes from our time in the field at sites associated with the Battle of Bullcott's Farm. Just missed it, Laurie-Anne cries. I quickly swerve into the Bullcott Hospital entranceway and execute a hairpin turn back towards the Bullcott Farm Memorial. We park down the side street just off the main road, and I complain to Laurie-Anne about how difficult it is to find these monuments. The weather is quite overcast today, and we get out of the car and we move towards the monument. The boulder looks a lot more impressive in real life. The photo in Ewan, Ewan Morris's paper don't do it justice to the scale of it. However, it's still only a boulder, and I'm mystified by its significance. Surely something more fitting could have been used to commemorate the event than a large rock from the Hutt River. I read the plaque and take some photos. A misty shower begins to descend. It's muggy, and a constant stream of cars moves loudly in either direction next to the site. I know I've been down High Street several times in all the years I've lived in Wellington, but the present of this boulder just doesn't register. Laurie-Anne points out the names on a plaque and notes that only the Pākehā soldiers are honoured. She marvels at the term Māori Wars, as if Māori are the villains who came and killed people. She wonders what it would like, be like to be a Māori child and read this hurtful narrative. The details of the battle in the plaque are sparse. I read the references to Māori involvement in the battle. Here, 200 natives on the 16th of May under Te Rangi Hayata's orders and led by Te Karamu of the Ngāti Haua Te Rangi Apa Wanganui were repulsed by a garrison of 50 men of the 58th Regiment. Hmm. I remember that these lands were occupied by Ngāti Tama and Ngāti Rangatahi, but there's no mention of this, or that these iwi are Te Karamu's whakapapa too. Laurie-Anne reads, hmm, six imperial men who, who rest nearby. Hmm. She wonders where they are, 
where they are resting and why the monument isn't with them. She counts nine men's names and says that this is the place to honour heroes who did something for New Zealand. We wonder about the situation that led soldiers to be accidentally killed. Suddenly, there's a small break in the traffic. Our minds enjoy the moment and the ability to sit in quiet contemplation. Laurie-Anne talks about a picture she'd received earlier from a friend on social media. The picture was of a metal pole in a playground in Canada that had white pride etched into the paintwork. She says that this is captured here and that there's pride in creating this New Zealand narrative. No wonder there's a resistance to learn New Zealand history. When I first got here, I asked my roommate how much she knew about New Zealand history and there really wasn't that much she knew. I can see her attitude perpetuating here. It starts to lightly rain. We reflect that the government policy changes appear to be making a positive difference, but society overlooks the everyday ways that colonialism continues. I see a forgotten trolley sitting behind the forgotten boulder and think the comparison seems fitting. Across the road are lots of references to the name Bullcott. I can see a sign saying Bullcott Village and another sign close by that points to Bullcott Farm, eatery and bar. Even the hospital's been gifted the name. A couple is walking on the other side of the road. I remember that locals who were close to monuments in Auckland and Waikato didn't seem to know much about the history. But surely it would be different here, given that I could see the Bullcott name all around me. G'day, guys. Do you know who Bullcott is? Doesn't it say there? The woman points to the memorial. My gut drops. I've heard that before. I point out that the farm, the village and hospital all carry the Bullcott name. Then the woman responds that she does know some stuff about it. There was a farm. I think he owned it back in the 1800s. All the locals got together and helped him secure the farm because all the because of the raids all the Maldives were doing. Where did you learn that? I ask. I researched my family history. Do I know who he was? He just owned the farm. For some reason, maybe because of her prosaic response, we both laugh. After I leave the couple, Laurie-Anne and I head back to the car. Laurie-Anne bursts out that all over the world, Indigenous world, Māori are known for their strength in decolonisation. But here it's just the same as other Indigenous countries, where the histories are being told in a certain way. She was shocked when she saw the monument, but it's triggered important questions. How are schools going to teach this? How are different perspectives of the histories going to be taught in a critical way? The narrative, if the narrative has been one-sided for so long, she appreciates that the monument is a resource to teach students about the history, and it would be awesome for students to learn about the monument before at hand, visit it, and then later draw um, how it could be changed. Laurie-Anne thinks that learning about monuments moves society beyond reconciliation to resurgence and reclamation of indigeneity. People talk about one-sided histories, and I was so surprised that New Zealand was like that too, where Māori are so strong. She remembers a seminar where one male presenter said, New Zealand is racist as fuck. We both laugh and Laurie-Anne says now she understands what he means. Wow, what a flash place, man. Laurie-Anne and I start giggling as we drive over the man-made water feature into a manicured landscape. We can't believe how close the farm is to the forgotten boulder. Wait, is this Bullcott Farm? Really? Says Laurie-Anne. She thinks that the reason why the Bullcott Memorial doesn't say where the settlers were buried is because they might be buried under these golf greens. The rustic farm look of the golf club centre reminds me of the Vineyard Estates in Blenheim. 
The wind is stronger and more blustery here than at the Memorial Boulder, thanks to the open golf grounds. We walk up the ramp towards the centre and wonder where the battle happened. The interior of the golf course centre is large and airy with high ceilings. We arrive in the foyer section and there's a golf come souvenir shop just beyond. To the right is a cafe area and several people are queuing for food. Uh, the course side of the building is large and um, with big wide windows to ensure the golf fields are presented in all their glory. I walk to a small table close to the main entranceway. On the top of the table are brochures about the golf course. An older woman wearing heavy eyeliner and tidy clothing sits nearby. I flick through a booklet titled Bullcott Farm Heritage Golf Club and note that the record of history begins in 1937. I ask the woman if she enjoys playing golf here. She said she doesn't play and just comes to eat at the cafe. I note how lovely the view is and she agrees. Yes, it's fabulous. It's a great setting. Feeling emboldened, I ask her more if she knows much about the history of the place. No, I just know it's very new. And the clubhouse is over that way, that way somewhere. I press on. Do you know who Bullcott is? I make sure I'm smiling. I can see she's a bit nervous. No. She directs me to an administration area around the corner. Laurie-Anne and I see a man walking around the shop area. Her shirt looks official, so Laurie-Anne approaches him and begins to ask for more information about the battle. But his phone rings and he walks away. It's an abrupt and un oddly ungracious departure. As I turn around, a woman who is wearing the same official shirt as the man steps in my way. Can I help? She asks in an upbeat manner. I say we're trying to find out who Bullcott is and any information about the farm. She takes me to the table where the brochures are stacked. Uh, sure, one of our books has a brief, like historically there were two separate golf courses, the Hutt Golf Club and Bullcott's Farm. And the Battle of Bullcott's Farm was held here. You can take this with you. There's a brief history in here. It starts at 1937. Yeah. And then you've got the monument at the end of the street. That signifies the land and what happened here. And the whole Hutt Golf Club located here um, over 100 years ago. And then we merged with the Bullcott Golf Centre. We were two separate courses and the council was having to build a big stock bank through it. So it made, made sense for us to merge rather than be neighbours. And that's when we merged and were renamed the Bullcott Farm Heritage Golf Club. Do you know where the original homestead would have been or where the battle would have been, I ask? No, but you're welcome to take that with you. I do know that my boys go to Bullcott School and I do know that one of the teachers there took them to the monument. So whether she manages to find out any more information? Well, the interesting thing is the memorial says that the soldiers were buried nearby, says Laurie-Anne. The woman responds, oh, it's quite interesting. With the development, the land that was our, the land that was our old golf club that was over there. Now, Somerset owns that, and they had to do some investigative digging because there were some rumours about some remains. So they've done some digging and not found anything other than crockery and glassware. So they've done, given the go-ahead, and they've done enough investigation. So the bodies are not there, says Laurie-Anne. Do people know where? Because it's very weird that it stays nearby and there's not a specific... No, I don't know. There's not a cemetery? No, no. We pause to let this soak in and say our goodbyes. The woman asks to let them know if we find out anything and we leave the building. Isn't it strange to think that people are probably buried here and no one seems to mind, Laurie-Anne says. She's still wondering why the memorial doesn't mark the place where those who died in the battle were buried. So that's why they have the memorial site over there because they wanted a place to play golf, she asks. I wonder how old that tree is. 
It might have been growing here when the battle took place, I say. Well, you can see the wounds in the bark, but trees can heal themselves like that, responds Laurianne, pointing to some ancient gashes in the trunk. It's so interesting that they make out Bullcott Farm to be this big thing, but it really seems to be only a marketing ploy for some of the businesses around here. People don't really care that much about the battle, because if you really cared, how could you play golf on land where people are buried and where there's a memorial right over there? It's mind-boggling. This is the land they fought on. It's so sad because there's nothing to say that this is Iwi land. Yeah, I agree. There's a particular kind of forgetting at work. Even the story about how the bugler boy who raised the alarm and continued to warn of the attack, even after he was said to be fatally injured. We've just read a bit about how he was a martyr, but where is he now? It seems like he's been forgotten too, a bit like the Bullcott Monument. The winds are really strong here, says Laurianne restlessly. It feels unsettled. I don't think that most people have any real idea about the history of this place, or maybe they don't want to talk about it. When I tried to talk to that guy back there to get some historical information, it was really clear he didn't want to talk about it. But that's the feeling I'm getting. It's kind of a, well, let's forget that history. We want to play our golf and do posh things. People here have such uncomfortable connections to the past. There's nothing to show what took place. The wind is so powerful here. To me, the wind is important. It connects what happened back to them to what's going on here now. Maybe a new monument that tells a different history needs to be built. Okay, I'm going to, um, sorry, round off the talk quickly. Um, we're running out of time. Um, and just bring us back quickly to the content of the Aotearoa New Zealand Histories curriculum and draw your attention to its big ideas and in particular the words power, colonisation and settlement. So researching colonial conflict associated with the Wairoa fray showed me the importance of questioning the way how we teach, we frame how we teach New Zealand history. Um, through what lens do we look when we approach issues of colonial violence with our students? Research at sites associated with the Battle of Bullcott's Farm helped me to see the subtle ways that memory is buried in our everyday landscape and how this shapes how we remember or forget difficult episodes in our past. Um, and there's much more work and thinking to do. How, uh, there's much more work and thinking to do around how to engage this new curriculum in a way that helps students to see that history walks with us now wherever we go. And I'm excited and a little nervous about most of about about that. Um, but most of all, I hope. Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. I think we've got time probably for two questions <laughs> from the audience. So if anybody has any particular question they'd like to ask Liana. Kia ora. The question really is, is it possible to interpret at place contested stories? Or what, what would that look like? Or could it look like? To go to a battle site like the Battle of Bullcott's Farm, like the Bullcott's Farm, and then talk about diverse perspectives at that site? Is that sort of a way of grounding, the con putting context to your question? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I, how, yeah. Is it possible to do, when you've got multiple contested stories, how do you mitigate um, the controversy, I suppose. I think perhaps you can, I mean, teach to that power relationship, you know, be transparent about the fact that there are multiple diverse partial perspectives and talk about the the power dynamic that's happening around that and, and perhaps convey some perspectives without 
um, you know, closing the conversation. Um, I think how that would look um, is probably quite locally dependent on how certain parties involved in those histories decide they should look. Um, yeah, it's probably probably not a blanket kind of response. You can't apply a blanket response to every Rohean context, perhaps, if that makes sense. Have you resolved where the battle took place and where the graves are? Resolved, no. But um, during the course of looking into, you know, the battle um, through the field notes, um, working with Joanna, Joanna and Vincent in particular, did a little bit of digging around and, um, yeah, kind of maybe have sort of some strong signals that it might be in a particular place, but not, I wouldn't say resolved. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, I don't even think I can remember off the top of my head, but um, hopefully there will be something coming up soon that might shed some more light on that. But, yeah, no, seriously, I can't remember at the moment. Sorry. Um, just another shameless plug for Tiako Manga on the NZ History Net. We've got a really great section there that talks about how we can use sites like this to kind of interrogate the past with students. So it's really, I think, the conversation you shared there is a really powerful way of how we can go about that, that note. I'm going to have to um, just wrap things up. Um, and once again, if we could just thank Liana for her presentation today. Thanks for listening to this New Zealand History podcast from Manatū Taonga. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you're looking for other content about New Zealand history, check out earlier talks in the series. You can find them on your favourite podcast channels. Just search for New Zealand History. Mā te wā.